an image in your head of a runner who's straining towards the prize. And that prize is godliness, and they're putting everything in place in life so that they can achieve that goal of godliness. Or if I'm to continue the idea of the athlete, perhaps there are sort of um, certain disciplines that you think are going to be put in place. And these disciplines will enable you to um, achieve godliness. Now, I suspect if I go that way, well, I don't think it would be particularly interesting to listen to or particularly exciting. And one of the reasons I don't think it would be exciting is because even if I was able to do this perfect, perfect method this perfect training routine for you to become a godly person. And even if I could create this clear image of what this godliness ends up as if you put everything in place in your life, then I think all I would do is actually um, heap a whole lot of guilt upon you. Because no one in here, because we are all sinners, no one in here would be able to match up. And you could think of the most godly people in this church, and if I was able to say, put this and this and this into your life, even those people would not be able to match up, and I'd just be heaping a whole lot of guilt on you. We're all sinners. We're not able to obtain what is called godliness in and of ourselves. And so, if I come over here to try and uh, nail down what we're doing today about godliness... I actually find I can't. And so at this point, I have to put the hammer down and realize that you cannot go throughout life and put certain structures in place and actually obtain the goal of godliness. And I, as I've sort of read about godliness this week uh, and in past weeks, I've, I've sort of discovered that I can't quite nail it down. I can't quite get exactly at what godliness is because it's not a series of steps. And some people have asked me in the lead-up to the sermon, um, so what are you going to say about godliness? And I've sort of said, well, I kind of know what I want to say. I know sort of what godliness is, but I just can't find the words to describe it. I just can't lock it down into a box. And for some reason, I started thinking about a fly, and sometimes when you're trying to trap a fly and it gets in on the wall, and you think you've got him with the fly swat, and then you swish, but he gets away. I felt like that's what it was like for me in godliness. I just couldn't trap it. I couldn't get it down to what it actually was. And when um, Paul speaks to Timothy about this word godliness, he actually describes it as a mystery. And I think if Paul describes it as a mystery, well, then how hard is it for us to actually get our minds into what this godliness idea is? The, the word used in the Bible um, for godliness is the Greek word eusebia, and it can be translated in different ways. One way, which we're primarily using, is godliness. It can also be translated as religion, and we'll see a bit later that that's how people in the past have often translated it. Um, it can be sort of translated as a way of um, having this perfect devotion to God as well, and at times in the Scripture it's used like, uh, like that, but not always. But what I'm trying to say is that this word godliness, we cannot put it into a box. It does not sort of fit neatly. And so I want to state from the beginning that our understanding of godliness cannot be that it is a particular formula that we put in place. It is not an action that we do that leads, there is no action that we do to lead to this godliness. Action, I guess, godly people are working out of that godliness rather than putting things in place to obtain that godliness. 
And I guess um, uh, a phrase to help us understand it, so our, our good works that we do, the godly works that we will do, will never make you godly. That's just not how it works. Though godliness will make you do good works. Now, at this point, you could be thinking, great, um, I'm expected to become godly, and the Bible does tell us to pursue godliness, so that's a good thing. Uh, but if we can't even define it, how on earth am I going to become godly? And I guess that's what we're trying to explore today. And I want to explore it through the eyes of a particular group of people in history. I want to look at it through the eyes of um, what were known as the Puritans. Now, the Puritans were um, in England. Um, the rough period for um, the Puritans was 1660 to 1760. And what the Puritans sought to do was reform the Church of England. They thought that the Church of England um, wasn't in line with other Protestant denominations, uh, and they sought to change the practices in two particular ways. The first way that they sought to do that was to change the hierarchical structure of the Church of England. They thought it was too hierarchical, it was too structured, and they didn't think it fitted in with how the Bible was teaching us that we should be structuring the church. But the second one, and it's probably more pertinent to the Baptist um, church, because the Baptist church, um, it's actually quite elusive to try and work out the origins of the Baptist church, but it does have some of its um, background in the Puritan movement. And the Puritans sought to re-establish in England an evangelical faith, a faith where people believe and a faith where people have a personal relationship with God. So the Puritans were about personal relationships. Now, when I think of the Puritans, and some of you would have heard of the Puritans, and you might have an image in your head of what they're like, I have this sort of image of austerity and dullness. A bit dry, a bit drab, a bit boring. Um, but interestingly, when I've read them, I haven't found that at all. I've found that because of their drive for a personal faith, because of that, they have this inner life um, that is just overflowing with the love of God. And so any outward image that I have of them um, just changed because of my reading. They were committed to a personal relationship. They were committed to having that uh, inner life of devotion to God. Um, the whole of the period, I guess, during the um, sort of 17th and 18th century has actually been described as a time of devotion. So if you look at the likes of uh, St. Ignatius and people like that, there was this idea of devotion being um, formed. But what's interesting to our um, study here is how they actually defined this word Eusebia or um, godliness, and they talked about it as religion. So they were talking about what this word religion means. And they did not define it as a ritual. They did not define it as going through a particular set of steps. But they defined it as a personal faith in Christ. And as you read through the Puritans, you find that, that their heart is just overflowing with this personal relationship with Christ. Um, there's one quote um, that's particularly helpful. It's not that one. We might have to go back. Um, J.R. Packer says that the Puritans, they were converted when religion stopped being a duty and became a delight. So the way that they look at religion is actually de to delight in the presence of God, which is a wonderful thing. So for them, pure religion is a spirit thing. Pure religion is a heart thing. 
Pure religion is about our relationship with God. Pure religion is about this relationship with God, but it's just it's different to how we relate to other people. You see, pure religion for them was that Christ is within us. And that's just really important. Christ is within us. It is a personal relationship where Christ dwells within us. Now, I want to look at... Um, some of the Puritans that we have, um, some of these you would have heard of. Uh, you would have heard probably of John Bunyan because he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I didn't particularly find it an interesting book to read, um, but some of, you, <laughs> some of you might be uh, more um, in tune with that sort of writing. Um, Jonathan Edwards is someone who really fascinates me, though. Now, he was sort of known as the um, father of American theology. Um, and he wrote a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where people were said to be clinging to pillars in fear of their life as he preached, um, which doesn't sort of characterize him very well, but a, a very wonderful man who has had a massive influence on theology in America. Um, Richard Baxter was a theologian and he was a prolific writer on pastoral theology. He was also imprisoned a lot uh, during his life um, for following the Puritan movement. Matthew Henry, some of you might have some commentaries of Matthew Henry. I think there's the, the most used one is a one that's can sort of condensed into one volume. And John Owen was at the University of Oxford and he was sort of a professor and an administrator there. Now, I got out of order, so if I go ahead to there, so we saw the Puritan view of godliness is a spirit thing. It's a heart thing. And it's about godliness being Christ in us. So it's not a series of steps. Godliness is about Christ in us. But I want to go on to um, something else that, the, that comes through in the Puritan readings. And that is that they believe that they have a higher calling. They believe that they have a higher calling. They are not bound to the, um, the way that the world does things. And they're not just focused on the here and now. They don't live for the brevity of the moment, but they live for the future. One author describes it as not being, not following the itches and the urges of life. And by that I mean they're not just responding all the time to everything around them and just looking for the next um, thing that makes them feel good. They're not the people that live for the weekend, just getting through the working week so that you can have a good time on the weekend. They're not the type of people that would create some sort of a bucket list so that they can just enjoy this life and forget about the life to come. They are a people that know that they are called for higher things. This Western world that we live in uh, probably doesn't realise that they're called for higher things. We live at odds with that. The Western world tends to drift along without necessarily having this purpose in mind. They're trying to satisfy a thirst, but when they fail, they just look for the next itch that comes along to satisfy them. The Puritans were not like this. And, and I guess that's where they get their um, dull, their austere type of reputation from. But the Puritans were far more purposeful in what they did. They knew that they had a higher calling. They didn't respond to the itches and urges of life. It is a different way to live. It is a way that li lives according to um, how God would have us live. And because Christ is dwelling within us, that means that we're living according to this higher calling. 
So godliness we have seen so far, it is a spirit thing. It is Christ within us. But godliness is also knowing that you have a higher calling. It means that you have purpose in life. What I find interesting, though, about the Puritan movement was that there was a, um, it seems like from, the, from an observer's point of view looking from centuries later, is there appeared to be a lack of fruit in their ministry. They didn't reform the Church of England. Uh, and that was for a few reasons, because the church was resisting it, but also because the monarchy at the time was resisting it. But not only did they not see that reform, there were plenty of imprisonments uh, of the Puritans. Baxter, as I mentioned a number of times, uh, one Puritan was described as imprisoned, had his property confiscated, had his ear chopped off and his nose cut. So um, if you were going to follow the Puritan movement at the time, it wouldn't have been a good thing, but you were standing up for what you believed the Bible was teaching. The Puritan movement didn't see a revival in their time. But they did, I believe, heavily influence the generation that followed after them. They heavily influenced the likes of uh, George Whitfield, who when he read um, something by uh, one of the Puritans, Henry Scougal, his heart was enlivened. And when his heart was enlivened, so began his preaching ministry along with um, John Wesley. And so this um, revival, this awakening movement was starting. So too, obviously, Jonathan Edwards was one of the Puritans, and when he went over to America, it had a massive influence on America. I would argue that that influence that um, Jonathan Edwards had on America also has an influence on us today. Certainly in the theology that I read, I'm a re reading a lot of these American theologians, and so the, I, I wonder how it would have been different if we didn't have the Puritan movement, if we didn't have Jonathan Edwards, who went over then to America. Um, and I, t I tend to think that we too need to have a similar mindset to the Puritans. I think we ne need to aim for a revival. I I'm hoping that everyone in here would like to see our city revived with an evangelical faith, our country revived with an evangelical faith. But I think if that's actually going to happen, that we need to get the spirit thing right first. We need to make sure that the spirit of God is in our hearts, that Christ lives within us. We need to get that right first. We need to get it right that we are living um, beyond the here and now. We need to get it right that we're not living for the itches and the urges of this life, but that we recognize we have a higher calling. We recognize that we have a higher purpose. Now, so far, I've sort of presented the Puritans as people who were inwardly focused. They focused on the spirit thing. They were far more than just that, though, because godliness, as we've said, is hard to define. The, the, the Puritans also valued worship a whole lot, and so they, they valued the corporate element to that. And when they valued worship, well, what was it about worship that they um, thought? What were the characteristics of Puritan worship? Well, there were two main ones. First, it was simple, and second, it was scriptural. The first one, simplicity, makes sense in their context. They're trying to change the church from being a structured hierarchical church to being something that's far more simple and what they thought was far more aligned with what scripture has to say. And when we talk about simple, I reckon as a congregation, we would probably understand that. 
I don't know if you've been into um, churches where there's so much happening, it's so busy, that you're finding you're not actually able to have uh, communion with God. You're not able to have that relationship with God. I wonder how it is for new people coming into our churches if we've got so much happening that people just can't have that free relationship with God. So, it was simple. Uh, I wasn't able to get some very good analogies for this one. I was thinking it's sort of like going into a mega city and there's just so much happening around and you're gasping for fresh air. You can't find that fresh air in the mega city. So too, you might not be able to find God uh, in, a, in a service or a worship setting that's not simple. I was also thinking of searching for a lost person or something in the bush. There's just too much around there, too much going on so that you can't see and find that person. So worship is a spirit thing. Um, so worship is a spirit thing for another reason too. And what the Puritans saw in worship, they certainly saw our response to God, um, as we often think of worship. But they saw worship as a means of grace. They saw worship as God coming to us. They saw worship as Christ's presence among us, where God seeks us and God comes to serve us. Now, this isn't a new thing, is it? It's something that's existed right throughout biblical history. Um, The tabernacling tent that would go around with the Israelites. In the Holy of Holies, we've got God's presence. And where we've got God's presence, um, He's there to serve them. He's there amongst them. Um, Some of you would be familiar with Ezekiel 47, and where we've got this um, image of a temple. And from that temple, there is water that is flowing out. And as that water flows out from the temple, it nourishes everything around. And um, this image reminds us that as we come to worship, as we come to the, the temple in Old Testament times, it is God that is reviving us. He is the river of life, the water of life. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we, come, we see that his death on the cross was there to serve us. When the, temple, uh, when the temple curtain was torn in two, it's God's presence escaping out and God's presence is there with us. Worship is about God's presence with us and that's what the Puritans saw. Worship is God's presence among us. Now, we can learn a lot from this. We can learn to value worship because we come expectantly. We come knowing that God is here amongst us, that He is present, and that His Spirit is here to bless us. Um, I can remember many years ago, um, I had a time where I was um, quite unwell, and I was going to church each week, and it was a real, real battle to get to church each week, just because I felt so lousy. But there was this verse that came to mind in Psalm 84 constantly, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And I realized how important worship was, how wonderful it was to be in the presence of God and in the presence of God's people. And I guess from that moment, I've appreciated worship, particularly when I can come in good health to worship God. But even when I'm not in perfect health, I still try and make it a priority to make sure that I'm getting to worship because I know it is where God is amongst his people and blessing them. I'm not saying anything about um, worship being any more particular about God's presence. And by that I mean um, God, God's presence is everywhere. 
Um, so I'm not saying that when we come to worship, um, there is more presence of God or anything like that, but it is certainly a way in which God's grace, is, God's grace comes through to us and we can meet together as a community and it's something that we should be valuing to receive from God and come expectantly to that. Now, the second aspect um, that I want to talk about with the Puritans and worship is that how they valued preaching. Now, when the Puritans preached, they preached for um, about an hour. So, I, I'm thinking this morning, if we really want to understand Puritans well, then um, I've got a fair bit of time to go, so, so I'm, I'm doing quite well for time in that case. Um, actually, the bit that I didn't like reading about how they valued worship was um, the tens of hours that they would spend in, in preparation for a sermon. And sort of as a preacher, you think that hopefully over time, the number of hours might actually reduce and you'd be able to sort of churn out a sermon quicker. Not according to the Puritans. They still valued um, spending tens of hours to make sure that emphasis was put on onto that Word of God and it was very clearly communicated. So it wasn't the best part in my week when I was sort of finding I had a lot to do and the Puritans are telling me, no, you've got to work harder and prepare more for the sermon, etc., um, but they were, um, I want to talk about the Word of God and how they saw the Word of God. When we open our Bible, we know it to be the Word of God. It is the inspired Word of God. They valued that Word of God, but the reason that they valued the preached Word of God is because they could see that the Word of God um, is just ink on a page if we don't actually understand it. Um, so they were concerned that it wasn't just the letter that was the key thing for our understanding, but it's, I guess, the spirit of the letter. And I guess we know that too, don't we? We know that when we read the Bible and you come across difficult passages, uh, for instance, when the psalmist wants to bash baby, a baby's head against a rock, uh, or when Jesus wants to try and, uh, well, he commands the pigs to be drowned in the water. Sometimes you read some difficult passages and uh, without it having it explained to you, you read it and you go, um, I think I'm supposed to say amen to this, I think, I'm not really sure what it's trying to say. We understand that when the Word is applied to our lives, when it is explained and applied, then that is when it becomes this living and active Word that is described as a double-edged sword um, piercing until it divides soul from spirit. We must be a generation that values preaching. We must be a, a generation that realises that the proclaimed word is something that nourishes our soul. I've been in um, a, a part of some organisations in the past who um, have evangelical zeal to them, but they've started to realise that the proclaimed word wasn't quite getting through as, as well as it might have. But what was getting through is when people would meet in small groups and they would start discussing things, people were more involved once they were talking and things like that. And there's been pressure at different times to actually go away from the preached word because of the success of the small group type situation. I think we need to be very wary of that. And there's a number of reasons we need to be wary of that. I, I think if the preaching isn't working, then the preaching just needs to improve rather than getting rid of it. But what happens when you don't have the proclaimed word and you're not actually discussing the word that has been preached? At best, people aren't actually growing in their knowledge of God. 
That's the best case scenario. People are just sharing what they already know. It can reduce, at worst, to sort of what Jesus means to me. It can reduce to just shared ignorance where we actually end up following in a different direction. In a Christian community, the Word of God has power. It is God's Word and we need to value that continually and it's another reason why we should value coming to worship each week so that we can grow. Now, this does have um, application, I guess, to uh, what we do here in church. Obviously, we need to, in church, give the proclaimed Word uh, really um, a high importance. I think it probably also directs what we do in our small groups as well. Now, when um, the Near Me House Church plans sort of the year out, we start to look at, um, are we having our Bible studies? Are we having our times where we're um, praying and sharing with each other? Because those times are really important, aren't they? When we pray and share with each other. But if we're not then having the Word to speak into those situations, we won't actually grow in our knowledge of Jesus and what He is doing in our lives. Now, the Puritans saw this as well. The Puritans... um, put in place these sort of groups where people would meet to discuss the Word. They saw it as the whole of the the preaching agenda, I guess, is to have the Word explained and proclaimed, but then to be discussing it and exhorting each other, encouraging one another in it. It is the Word of God that creates community and it is the Word of God that brings unity and that's something that we um, must always remember. See, the Word of God is the thing that enables our growth towards godliness. Um, But more importantly, it is the Word of God that is Christ in us and that is the thing that enables goodness. I want to move on now to actually address a Bible passage. We haven't actually got to that yet. Um, See, the Puritan movement has given us a bit of the background or a window into what godliness is. So we've seen that it is the spirit thing, it is um, Christ in us. We've seen that they've got a focus that's not just the here and now, but they're called to a higher purpose. We've seen that godliness is about worship and about receiving from God in worship. And we've seen that it's about um, receiving the proclaimed word so that we may grow. Um, In 1 Timothy, Paul uses the word Eusebia regularly. Um, He uses it at one point uh, to talk about having a quiet and godly life in all holiness. And another point, he says, train yourself for godliness. But there's one particular occasion that's of interest to us here, and it's in chapter 3, verse 16. And it says this, Beyond all question... The mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Now, that's the NIV translation, and I reckon it's pretty good because it talks about godliness springing up. Godliness isn't putting things in place to achieve a certain goal. It springs up. Um, If we go with a more um, literal, literal translation, it just says, undeniably, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, At this point, because godliness is talked about as a mystery, in some ways we're back where we started. We couldn't really define it. And I'm not able to yet drive a nail in there because what is this godliness? But that's not the final word. You see, where it says mystery in the Bible, the word mystery doesn't always mean something that's covered up never to come out. It's something that's sort of concealed in order to be revealed. 
So the mystery is concealed in order to be revealed. And when we see this word used in the Gospels, and it talks about the kingdom of God, it talks about the kingdom of God being uncovered. This mystery is uncovered as we see it revealed in Jesus Christ. And so how is this mystery of godliness uncovered? Well, it's not by faking it until you make it, which means going to church and hoping that somehow you'll become godly. And it's not by working out the formula and putting it into a box so that you can make your life more godly. But the mystery of godliness, as we are told in the next verse, is Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the mystery of godliness uncovered. Now, this is actually quite different to how we normally think of godliness. We normally think of godliness as a quality, a characteristic. But this is saying that the basis and the content of Christianity is godliness, and that is Christ himself. What on earth does that mean? I know it's a Sunday morning and it's pretty hard to think, but if godliness isn't a quality, it's the content of something, it's Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, it partly means that Christ is in us, as we've, as we've already said. But I want to look at the next part of this, because um, I've sort of split it up into two sections there. The mystery of godliness is revealed in Jesus Christ, and then it starts talking about Jesus Christ. And the bit in purple is, he appeared in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels. The mystery of godliness is revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the way for us to become godly people, to pursue godliness, is to pursue Jesus Christ, is to have a relationship with him, is to know who he was in the flesh and what he did, what he achieved by his resurrection. The second part, actually I'll I'll put the next part up here, it's sort of gone off the screen a little bit. You can see up the top, the first part is the incarnation, then the resurrection, then the glorification. So all together, that is um, who God is. The second part is more about the proclamation. So what that means is godliness is Jesus Christ proclaimed amongst the nations. If we are to be godly people, if we are to be a godly church, then we know who Jesus is, we have a personal relationship with him, and we proclaim him amongst the nations. And if we proclaim him amongst the nations, that is um, living according to our higher calling, living according to our purpose, we proclaim him amongst the nations. Now, if, this, uh, if we go with this, then godliness is different for different people here. And what I mean by that is, as, as a church, we're proclaiming the gospel amongst the nations, and Christ calls us to be one body together doing that, and each of us have, has different gifts. Now, sure, there are things in common. Uh, the common things are we're committed to worship. We're committed to the preaching ministry and we're absolutely committed to a personal relationship with Jesus where he is dwelling within us. But some of you, in following godliness, you're following your calling to exhort and encourage one another. Some of you, when you're being godly, you're called to be leaders and you're, following, uh, you're leading other people and encouraging them to follow their higher calling, to help them understand their purpose in life. 
For some of you, when you're being godly, you're being hospitable to Christians and non-Christians alike. For some of you, when you're being godly, you're proclaiming the gospel amongst the nations. For some of you, when you're being godly, you're committed to prayer. You're committed to joining in with, uh, with God in all that he is doing in the world. I could go on, but you get the point. So we've seen that we struggled really to define godliness because it's not a series of steps. Instead, it's a relationship with Christ and what comes out of that relationship with Christ. We saw that godliness has a commitment to worship. It is where we receive from God. We saw that godliness has commitment to the preached word. See, the preached word is where we grow in Christ. We saw that godliness has this new purpose or this new mindset where we're, we know that we've got a higher calling. We're not living for the itches and the urges of this life. Godliness, we have seen, was a mystery, but it's a mystery no longer because that mystery has been uncovered and that mystery has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Godliness is a mystery only revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's the point at which we can nail it down. That's the point at which we no longer think that it's a series of steps. I don't know if Cam was worried that I wasn't actually going to nail something down here or whether I was going to completely ignore it. But that is the mystery of godliness that has been revealed. It is revealed in Jesus Christ. It is about our relationship with Christ. It is about Christ dwelling within us and about our purpose, our higher calling to proclaim the gospel amongst the nations. Let us pray. Gracious Father, what a blessing it is to be here in worship. What a blessing it is to come here and receive from you like the waters flowing out of the temple and nourishing everything around. So, Lord, we come and are nourished by you. Lord, we thank you that um, when your word is proclaimed, we can grow in Christ. When your word is proclaimed, we are enriched for the life that you call us to. When your word is proclaimed, we realize that we are not living in the itches and the urges of this world, but we live for you because you live in us. Help us, Lord, to see our, how godliness is shaped in us. Help us to see our vocation, our ministry, how we fit into the body of Christ so that we can be part of the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth, so that we can live a godly life. And Lord, help us never to think that godliness rests on us, that it rests on us putting particular things into place in our lives. Help us to see that godliness is about you. It is about you dwelling inside of us to make us godly in the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.